The following audio content is a talk from Convergence, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at upc.org forward slash young adults. So John made a little bit of a mistake tonight. Um, he let the worship leader have the microphone. Uh, I don't know what he went wrong in seminary because I know that there's specifically a class in seminary that he took that told you never give the worship leader the microphone to talk. It's always a bad idea. Um, but I guess he failed that class. So, um, But since I do have the microphone, I'm going to talk about some things I care about uh, because I have the microphone. So one of them, has already been said tonight, is New Orleans. Uh, that is happening. I'm going on that trip, and I want to personally invite every single one of you to join us because it's going to be awesome, and I want you all to come. So come on. Let's go. Let's go, all of us. We'll just go together, go down to New Orleans. So it's going to be a blast. It's not only a time of just sort of uh, growing as a community, but also taking time to serve um, and really learn about what does it mean uh, to serve people who are uh, oftentimes less fortunate than us. Um, So I'm looking forward to it. If you have, again, like Sarah said, if you have more information, uh, talk with us. Um, so Sarah also talked about these these services that are going on, and I'm going to highlight one of them. She said, "Go to all of them." I'm going to tell you, go to the 10 p.m. Good Friday service because I'm leading it. <laughs> uh, but more, even more specifically than that, uh, it's going to be a, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be in the sanctuary. Um, and we're going to actually have absolutely no sound system whatsoever. So we're actually going to get a sort of experience the acoustics of the room. And we're going to read together the passion narrative from the Garden of Gethsemane all the way to Christ's death. And through that time, uh, have time of music and, and worship and just sort of live into this feeling of grief, grief that we often experience um, in the death of Jesus Christ. So I really encourage you, uh, come join us for that. Um, again, 10 p.m. on Good Friday. Um, so, yeah, we're going to continue on with our series that we've been doing, which is, you know, as you know, it's like a discussion. We're talking about, you know, interacting with some things. And specifically, we've been talking around John 15 for the last few weeks. Um, tonight, we're going to try something else, if, uh, a little interesting thing. If you don't feel comfortable standing up and asking a question, we're, we have a cell phone number that you can text so you don't like have to be like oh i'm so i don't know what to to say so it'll text and then it's going to go to it's going to go right here and she'll ask the question for you okay so go ahead and there'll be a number there you go you can text that aren't we so high tech yeah (laughs) Woo! i'm i just did that to have to one-up john really is what really what happened there um anyway uh, so I want to introduce you to a good friend of mine. Um, his name's Brad Embry. And Brad, uh, I got to know I, when I started my undergrad at Northwest, and now I'm doing a master's in theology and culture. So I've had the opportunity uh, to get to know him in a lot of different contexts. So Brad, uh, just tell you a little bit about him. He has a uh, Bachelor's of Art and Master's in Biblical Literature, literature from Oral Roberts. Uh, he has a Ph.D. in theology concentrating on Old Testament and Second Temple Judaism uh, from Durham. Oh, that's crazy. And then uh, now he's presently a full-time faculty at uh, 
Northwest University. So I'm going to invite him up. He's going to come talk with us. Yeah, come on. Give him a round of applause. Yeah. Woo! How you doing? That, is that on? <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, that's, yeah, fine. Thank fine. you. Yeah. Yeah. Exciting stuff. PhD. Yeah, and PhD all. and all right. those things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I just want to say, if I may, um, this is unscripted, uh, and you probably detect this very quickly. Um, uh, plug for New Orleans. I was down there recently, last November, for a conference, Biblical Studies Conference, and a colleague of mine and I got out a little bit and saw some of the city, and there's still a great need. Uh, in New Orleans, so encouragement along that front. And, and Bourbon Street is something uh, to see. You can imagine a whole bunch of academics trotting around Bourbon Street on a Friday. Yeah, yeah it's a recipe. Are there, is there anybody from Northwest University here? Yeah, I'll say no more then. I'll say no more about Bourbon Street and my, invol and my involvement in Bourbon Street. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Let me, uh, let me pray for us and we'll get started. Yeah, sorry. Oh, yeah, of course. That'd be, yes. That'd be great. Uh, Lord, uh, we come before you uh, as your people. Um, Lord, open our eyes to your scripture in new ways tonight. Uh, in your community, uh, open our hearts, eyes, and mind. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I'll just, uh, we're going to get started with some opening questions and then we'll open the floor up like we've been doing and uh, we can all kind of chip into the discussion. Um, so over the last few weeks, Brad, you, as you know, we've been talking kind of in our community groups and then also here in Convergence, um, specifically about John 15, first the vine and the branches, and then, uh, then now we've been talking about the second half of 15, which is the world will hate the Christ followers uh, passages. Um, could you explain to us a little bit about what, how do those connect together? We haven't done much work in seeing those two things um, and how those two passages in John 15 work together. Sure, yeah. Um, and we start out with some scripted, Kyle and I sort of work through where to take this this evening. Um, and so we work through some scripted questions, kind of open up uh, the discussion a little bit, uh, and kind of see the angles that we're taking on this uh, particular passage. There's really two, two points of orientation, one being the world, and then the other is how do we deal with this notion that the world will hate of those who follow Christ. So in answer to your question, I think that the first section of John 15 and the second section of John 15 are connected really fundamentally through the work of Christ and this adoption of those who follow Christ into this vegetative metaphor, so uh, uh, vine and branches, uh, father as the vine dresser, um, and adopted a, along the lines of being friends. I think this is a very important uh, term that's introduced. Uh, for those disciples. This is no longer a master-servant relationship, but rather this sense of friend. I think it's very important for John to do this uh, for a variety of reasons. Chiefly, in John 15, is because what the community is going to inherit is Christ's work. And so it's very important to create that continuity between what Christ does and what these friends will continue to do. The predicate for that, all of that, is love. And I think this is one of the unifying features for John, not only in 15, uh, in his talk about the work of Christ uh, and, of course, the Father through Christ, um, but also for John's gospel more generally is this notion of love. And it's something that is, and if you look at John's gospel, he's talking about this from the standpoint not only of how the Father views 
uh, his children, or, and we, we're going to spin this out to the world more generally, uh, but how the father views the world, but also how the friends now in the community are to view one another. It's a very important feature, this notion of love, that bonds us and unifies us uh, in Christ. So I think this is part of what creates that initial connection. The second section, then, of John 15 goes on and talks about the world's reaction, then, to those believers. Yeah, and I know in our community group, we spend a whole lot of time talking about world and what does the world mean, and we kind of went around and around about, uh, you know, what could it mean, what does it mean. Could you, uh, you know, tell us what you think about that um, a little bit more. What is John really getting at with the term world? Yeah, and when Kyle sent me a, a list of questions, one of the things, his question actually reads, if I may, because I think it helps to open this up just a little bit. The term world seems to be an ambiguously broad word. And I think that that's actually the case in John, and, it, and, and I think intentionally this notion of it being broad uh, is intentional. Now, I think John is working on a couple of levels. Uh, so he's talking about uh, uh, categories of individuals with the term world, and he means different things at different times. And I think this is important to keep in mind from a general standpoint for John's gospel. And so I think it's, I think it's actually multifaceted, this world term. On the one level, on the one hand, I think it means what we commonly associate it with, those who are outside the confessional community. So those who are not, what we might say, Christian, and in, in, in Christ's case, in his context, those who are not Jewish, for instance. But I also think that John uses this term world to refer to those characters who are confessionally oriented, who are oppositional to Christ's message. That is to say, those in the Jewish community who are opposed to Jesus' work. And so actually I think this term world, is it, it, it has that multifaceted, multivalent sort of characteristic in John's gospel. So when you think about world in John, you're thinking about, yes, those secular characters who have no confessional background, but you're also potentially thinking about those within the confessional community who are oppositional to Christ's work. It's a very important thing, not only for John, but also for Jesus as well, because, of course, one of his primary points of contention through his ministry is precisely with those who identify themselves in the confessional community, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You know, this is a sense, one sense of the term world, I think. So, but we can talk more so, about this. I guess to boil that down a little bit, what you're saying essentially is that the gospel message is not merely for the community of believers, but for the whole world, for all of the people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, John and, and Christ, of course, would make this explicit. John, of course, the famous John 3.16. This is cosmos in the general sense, yeah, the sense of sinners broadly. Um, and so, yes, I think it is, it's specific to certain characters, and it's also general uh, to the world more broadly. Uh, and we can talk, I think, one of the important points to talk about, maybe we do this in the general Q&A, is to talk about what it is that this term hatred actually indicates. Uh, we get the sense from hatred that I want to kill something. Yeah, and that's certainly part of this. And, of course, for John's gospel and Christ's ministry, uh, this, is a, this is a key component, a key feature. Uh, because, of course, Christ does die at the hands of, essentially at the hands of those who, who oppose him. Um, but I think hatred is also something that needs to be read with a, a little greater subtlety as we spin this out. What does it look like? I don't feel like people are hating me. How does this apply to me? Yeah, maybe they do and I don't know it. Yeah. 
this is possible too, I guess. I have my head in the clouds a lot, but yeah. Anyway, um, I see. I feel like I'm mildly lovable, but in an awkward sort of way. I recognize this. I love yeah. you, Brad. This, she laughs. Yes. Thank you. You'll get your money after the. Right. And thank you for for loving me. Yeah. Anytime. <laughs> Uh, so I guess we could well, take this a step further and ask a question that's not not a question we always ask, but I think it's applicable to what we're talking about here. Why why redeem the world at all? Oh yeah, uh, sorry, I wasn't tracking. Yeah, no, I, I, sorry, I wasn't tracking. I was actually on question two still. You had moved to question three, right? Yeah, okay. Um, or four. No, this, this is my right. Oh, sorry, you had missed right even. Even further afield, you'd move to four. Um, yeah, why? Why? I was a little bit behind the game. I got excited about New Orleans. Um, yeah, this uh, this why redeem the world? Uh, let me go back and just say something about three, um, if I may, because it, 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 I think it helps to uh, to sort of set this up. So uh, and, and sort of reha- re- recap this a little bit is talking about world from these two vantage points. So those within the confessional community and those outside of it. I think it helps to open up a little bit this discussion about this notion of redemption and and effectively Christ's work. So if we're talking about Christ's work, uh, what is it that we're getting at and how are we getting there? Um, And this question that you ask about why redeem the world, uh, there is something very deep in this as to how it informs the way in which we interpret this term world, how we interpret what it is that Christ does, and more perhaps appropriately, why he does it. So this notion of this question again of why. And I think that the thing that helps to stabilize this, this comment, because it can be something that seems unwieldy. Uh, You can talk about this and you can think along the lines of everybody is in need of redemption. How in God's name and why? I don't like all of these people. Yeah, that's easy enough to do. And I think what helps to sort of break this down and create this sort of uh, this general rubric, you know, this general title or heading, uh, is this notion of the image of God. I think it's a co- I think it's a concept actually that's oftentimes lost in our discussions of what it is that Christ does and why it is that God sends Christ to redeem the world. What's the rationale? Well, we have this notion of love already, but why? Yeah. How is love motivated in these in this regard? Why is it that you have regard for this this world community? And I think this language of image of God is very important in this. And what this does then is it establishes a perspective, and it should it should inform our perspective. Now I don't know if everybody in here is confessionally minded. I am, so it should inform my perspective on how it is that I go about my day to day life as a witness to Christ is that my engagement with people around me is predicated fundamentally not on their confessional background. It's not predicated on their ethnic distinctions. It's not predicated on their gender. The fundamental basis for my interaction with people around me is that they're made in the image of God. And this helps to stabilize, I think, this reading so that we understand why it is, in a sense, Christ comes to redeem the world. And I think that's why John's Gospel, the New Testament, And because I'm an Old Testament man, I may say this as well. The Old Testament understands fundamentally the work of God's community, so Israel or church, as being directed to the human community. It's very important, I think, in in stabilizing this reading so that we don't 
Basically, what I'm saying is that we don't simply assume that world equals those who are not believers. Yeah, we don't read this as the world hating us. This is simply the secular community. Because John doesn't read this so flatly. His has this nuance to it. And more importantly, Christ comes to save the world. Yeah. So, uh, Could you just really quickly um, fill out this image of God concept? You know, where is that... Where does that image even take root? Uh, how would John, John assume image of God at all? Well, one of the things about John's gospel is that incidentally is not on the script. So this is shooting from the hip. Uh, John's go- Yes, it's dangerous. John's gospel is, he starts off with this obvious nod to the creation account. In the beginning was the word. And so John is certainly mindful of the creation account from Genesis 1. And it's in Genesis 1 where this image of God language is laid in place. One of the things that we look, we look at in the upper division elective courses in Old Testament, for instance, doing a course on Old Testament figures right now, and we, we look at the Old Testament figures Adam and Eve uh, in tandem. We, sorry, we look at them in tandem. So we don't just deal with... Uh, the male, we don't just deal with the female, we deal with both. And this, the connection here, I think, is in Genesis 1, where when it's talking about the image of God, it's made in the image of God, male and female. And this is something that oftentimes gets sort of trotted through rather rapidly when you're looking through Genesis. And we just sort of assume, I look at you, image of God, and then I look at, what's your name? Kelly, image of God, and I look at Kyle, image of God, and I think the thing that Genesis 1 is telling us is that Kyle cannot be by himself image of God, nor can Kelly by herself be image of God, but rather it's this world community. And so when we're looking at world, we're looking very generally at this. We're looking at this notion of image of God from this standpoint. And the the thing about this is that this is your right just simply by birth. It's not a matter of being born into a specific community. I think this is something of Christ's words, or sorry, John the Baptist's words to the Pharisees. Uh, stones, we are children of Abraham. These stones we turned into, I'm paraphrasing, the children of Abraham. It's not about ethnic distinction in Christ's community. It's not about uh, specific sort of confessional stances or these types of things. It's unity in Christ. And I think that's one of the important things about John 15 and talking about this love language that unifies us. And think of the vegetative metaphor here, this powerful vegetative metaphor where we have this vine and each of us, you know, these branches spindling <laughs> off of it, you know, biologically connected to this vine. It's one entity. It's a bush or a plant or a vine more generally. Yeah, it's all connected. And so the whole thing becomes one organic whole. And this fundamentally incorporates male and female, this image of God language, which then is what I think defines and helps us define uh, the world more generally. This is why Gentiles can be incorporated into the community of God. I think fundamentally this is the connecting point. What is Christ doing? At the end of the day, he's recapturing. His work helps us to recapture the image of God. And where does this recovery take place? Well, right here is one answer. Yeah. In, 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 session, in, in sessions. This is a session. It's not. Yeah, no, session's the wrong word. In, in, uh, in, in, uh, communal, in communal situations such as these. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, that takes us on to our next question. That, you know, I cleverly title you Mr. Bible Scholar. Ooh, well. Yeah, so uh, I say let's doc, get... Dr. Bible Scholar. But Dr. We Dr. Bible Scholar. <laughs> <laughs> so I say, okay, uh, let's get practical uh, Dr. Uh-uh. Bible Scholar. How do we do this? I mean, how do we navigate hatred uh, in this in this sense? How do you suggest, or how does... John maybe suggests. Yeah, I think, um, and I don't, I mean, one of the things, uh, John probably does this in his own way, simply by alerting you to the, to the fact, or to this possibility. Uh, I think that this relies really on a more general sort of notion of community, and, and what our duty is, what's incumbent upon us as, as followers of Christ. Um, and when Kyle asked this question in the office, I said very simply, I think it's education. Um, but that requires some elaboration. Sorry, uh, requires some elaboration. Um, and unless it seems like I'm self-serving, I do not mean coming to university. That is not what I intend. I do not mean picking back up schoolwork and these types of things. Uh, education, I think of much more. Ge- this is education, and not just because I'm talking. Education is something. Certainly, maybe not. Yeah, um, <laughs> education is a coming together. Education. What I mean by this are, are are those those confessional moments, those communal moments, wherein people get together and they share the reality of Christ's work on earth. And uh, this takes place in a variety of ways. Uh, going back to university is potentially one way, uh, but worshiping in a in a musical fashion, devotions, small group Bible studies, these types of things. Constantly connecting with your Christian faith through the community. One of the things John is doing here, the Gospel of John, and the New Testament more generally works out, is the transition between Christ's work and the the work of the community. Because someone inherits Christ's ministry. And it ain't an individual. It's a corporate body. And this corporation that we come to know is the church. And now, of course, in the modern context, in all of its many manifestations. But it's a group of people gathering together in this confessional standpoint, confessing Christ as Lord and recognizing God's kingdom come. So I think that that constant and continual engagement, and it requires, I mean, this is one of the things about it, is that it does require sort of constant engagement. There's a life. There's a life to this. Uh, to this engagement. There's a life to this process. And I think situations like these are, are certainly uh, places where we can do that, yeah. where we can engage uh, in this way. So oh, one last thing, if I may, this, 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 this notion of hatred. Um, I, and just a personal comment on this. And I was thinking through this. How, how, how is it that we can engage with this idea of hatred? Uh, without reading it flatly as somebody wants to kill you, um, but rather actively engage with us in our own in our own ways. And as I was thinking through this and thinking through things that were oppositional to Christ's ministry, I, initi- I immediately had situations that I've been involved in uh, where I've seen people within a confessional context who have actively acted against, in my opinion, 
uh, Christ's message, the gospel message. And I wondered if there wasn't something to this, and maybe this is something we can discuss. I wondered if there wasn't something to this idea of hatred that goes beyond these boundaries of I want to take you out and you know, do you in. And it actually, hatred is, a, is an idea where somebody is, again, oppositional to Christ's message in any, of its, in any sort of manifestation. So, for instance, the abuse of sec, uh, sexual... I'm sure Freud would have fun. <laughs> but he's, he's dead, so instead I have to fill in. <laughs> social. This abuse of social was what I was seeing. It's abuse of social uh, equity. So, for instance, in where God's presence is, one of the features about uh, social justice in the biblical text is where God's presence is honored. There, too, must, as a byproduct of his presence, be social justice. Now, if in that community we see a corruption of this, is that hatred? Is that hatred of the gospel message? I think that it might be. Yeah. And I think that those voices, then, that oppose that, I think th that is a way of being, in a sense, hated. I think it's much more multifaceted. Yeah, there's nuances to this idea uh, of hatred. So uh, I just wanted to shoehorn that in Great. awkwardly. Um, Great. Uh, that kind of sums up initial thoughts. And so we're going we're gonna to take uh, questions now from anyone. Feel free. Via text message. Via text message. Uh, well, maybe we'll just start with a text message. Okay. Whoa, 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 wait. The first one is a text message. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, it says, could you explain verse 22? Is it better to hide our faith when we, when we encounter those who I don't have 22 memorized. Oh, could you repeat the question, please, yes. Kelly? Oh, man, uh, no. <laughs> now, how that, how that manifests uh, in the Will face you read of... read 22 for us? Sure, or? sure, 15.22, coming at you. If I had not come and spoken to them, uh, they would have not been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't say so. Um, perhaps this... Uh, and I don't know if the question sort of revolves around how is it that I act as an effective witness, perhaps. Um, so whoever sent that text message, could you just confirm that vocally? I'm just kidding. Um, uh, I don't know if that's uh, part of the question, is how do I actively sort of engage with my faith in those situations. Um, one of the things about uh, the life of faith that I think has often, which has uh, suffered some abuse, is this sense that it is a lived experience. And uh, it's not something, I think, that is marked out by the significant waypoints in which we're shouting on a street corner. For some of you, that may be your, your bag of marbles. It's certainly not mine. Uh, and, and Godspeed, uh, you doing that. Um, but this can't be, I don't think, the way in which um, the gospel message actually is trotted out over the course of human history. The gospel message is sort of this slow, it seems to me, ebb. And it's intractable precisely because there's people, perhaps like some of us in the room, who get hold of it, and, and it's what we want. Yeah, we understand its deep meaning. 
uh, for the human being. And so I think there's maybe something in there. Uh, I don't know how to answer uh, Jane Smith's question um, entirely uh, because I don't know how he or she is feeling in regards to witness, uh, but I don't think so, no. I don't think you need to brazenly clock them over the head with a Bible track, um, but by the same token, you know, this sense of living I think is important. And I think you're saying that witness is a bit more multifaceted in a sense as well. Sure. Uh, that, um, that our witness is more than just telling somebody you need Jesus, but it's about our daily engagement with uh, community and uh, the community of Seattle and each other and all those things. It's very important from the standpoint of this idea of world as well. This notion that that individual still made in the image of God and this possibility. I look at you as though you asked the question, yeah. Um, for this, yeah, um, as a proxy, right. Um, uh, but this notion of constant engagement with the world precisely because, and that's why I think image of God is such an important idea here, is that that individual is completely, uh, uh, you know, a constituent part of the image of God. Christ loves that individual, and this should be a guiding model for our approach as well. Yeah. Beth, did you have one? I thought you were kind of raising. Um, my mind is so small because I'm biased to things like that. So. Uh, I'll have you ask the second question again in just a minute, because okay. I'll. Right. <laughs> and so. Um, uh, in regards to the first question, education is one of those things that, and what I mean by it is this rather, uh, it's a much bigger idea than simply, uh, you know, encouraging people who have fallen away. If you've fallen away, come back, and we love you. Um, this is an element to this for sure. I mean, these things need to be expressed. One of the difficulties we face, I mean, I'll just say this now, one of the difficulties we face is our own history. Um, we haven't always been the best at what we do. And we've not handled with kid gloves in situations where we ought to have. Uh, the, the church is well aware of these. Well, some, sometimes the church is well aware of these things. Um, what we want, to, I think, to try to do, and, and I think to address this, and this is this idea of education being a little bit uh, more nuanced. It, like you, is an onion. Yeah. Um, is, there's these multiple layers. Yeah, there's multiple layers to this idea, is that an in, in education for some is to be in a position where they can engage with the gospel message in its, in its great depth and truth, its great sympathy to human life, its great sympathy to uh, issues and difficulties that people face, and also its, its transformative power through the Spirit. One of the things that John gets at at the end, which we haven't talked about, uh, is the notion that the Spirit will come. And we constantly hold out this hope, I think, in a communal context, that the Spirit will come and do things that human articulation cannot. And so I think that this notion of education is, this constant, again, this constant re-engagement. And the thing on our parts, the duty for us, and I'll take you and I, for example, the duty for us in this regard is to constantly understand where we stand, always self-examining, God Almighty, I hope I'm not the world. Just about the time we start saying this, we're the Pharisee who says, I'm sure glad I'm not that sinner. Who's the guy who understands repentance? Yeah. And so I think there's this, this issue of control. What is it that we're sort of, what is it that we're in, um, 
What is it that we're in direct relationship with? And that then creates a context, I hope. And again, this notion of the sphere working. That then, I think, helps to create a context where people who are disaffected in their past can re-engage. And this life of the spirit, we hope very much in the life and work of the spirit. The thing about this, though, is that this happens ideally in the community. You, you cannot overstate the importance of the community from the New Testament standpoint. We inherit the work of Christ. Yeah. Who's the Episcopalian? Sarah, you're an Episcopalian. Yeah. You know, our liturgically minded, perhaps more, more liturgically minded brothers and sisters, they get this in ways. It becomes lifeless at times. We have critiques to level against them, but they can certainly sh shout back at us. Yes. You're lovely people. <laughs> You're very warm and, well, mostly approachable. You, very approachable, yes. So, and your second question, I think I remember, was, uh, yeah, your second question was mining the, the texts for uh, potentially abusive practices. That didn't seem like a question to me, though. What, what's your name? I, I'm not saying that to critique. I'm saying that's a good comment. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, and that's part of the educational process is to really sort of understand some of these layers. I teach a course on it's called Israelite conquest. Um, I don't necessarily like the term, but we have to squeeze it into the the academic catalog or the, the the phrase. So we come up with these things, some some hoops, you know. And one of the questions that always comes to the foreground is, well, what do we do with war in Joshua? Because this is one of those areas where the text can become this repository for language of holy war. And they are wrong and we are right. I, God help us, we've heard this in a contemporary setting. Yeah, This is one of those situations, though, where I think education, uh, in the more formal sense, actually helps to stabilize this this reading. And we can talk more about Joshua specifically. I don't want to get sidetracked. But this language of holy war cannot be something that's supported from a Christian standpoint out of the book of Joshua. Joshua's program is something else. Yeah, he's talking, he's actually targeting something else. And so the point is, is that education, you're right, absolutely right to say, it does help to stabilize. It's not that we're free from making silly mistakes. We, we aren't. But there again, Holy Spirit, come, right, and help us. So the guiding work, uh, two, one, two thumbs up. One thumb up. Other questions? Either vocally or via text. Right there. Can you tell a story about Fred Phillips, etc.? Uh, that we are doing our job, the world hates us. Ooh. Um, it is a good question. Um, doing, doing our job is, I think it's something that. Um, and part of what John 15 does, and certainly be open to further comments here, but I think part of what John 15 does is it suggests that this, the inheritance that believers have, uh, is solely through the work of Christ. That is to say, this may be touching on what Paul gets at in terms of, uh, I keep looking at you, you're going to get this. I don't know who asked this, but it's you out there. Um, is, is touching on Paul's uh, comment in terms of um, the notion that you, one cannot work for 
this faith. It's not to say that we don't do things. We have stabilizing elements from James, for instance. And I don't think Paul ever had this idea that you don't actually do stuff. My gosh, this guy was doing stuff left, right, and center. Yeah. Uh, but I think that there's something, and the point to this is that I think there's something about the gospel message that comes uh, through the work of Christ, not necessarily through the individuals. And so we don't necessarily seek out this hatred from that standpoint. Don't be, a, don't be an idiot. Yeah. Um, do your, in a sense, live your life as a reflection and a model of Christ within a communal context uh, in such a way that it's, it resonates with the gospel message. That's not easy to do. Yeah, and it takes this effort, it takes this education to do. Uh, but I think there's something that, and, and, and again, this is not the final word on this by any stretch, but I do think there's something about that that requires this, you know, this careful navigation of whether or not we're actually doing something yeah, that generates animosity from others, or whether or not just by virtue of being a follower of Christ, that's generating this animosity on whatever level. So, and again, not the final word, but a few thoughts. Well, I think it's uh, fascinating, too, that when I feel like I'm living in that place, like your story, it's not necessarily the world, again, the secular world that hates me. It seems to be the non-secular world that sure. seems to hate. And I think it's fascinating that that sort of opposition comes from exactly the last place we would expect it to. Sure, yeah. Yeah, isn't the story uh, Dostoevsky's The Grand Inquisitor just comes screaming home, you know, in these situations, who puts Christ on trial? Yeah. yeah it's profound, you know, this character is doing his job. Yeah. Uh, one of the great weights of that section. Uh, I just had a thought what you said about... Um, It's, it's hard to say. The reason I paused is John does have this, his gospel does have this sort of sense to it. Uh, ultimately, I don't think, I mean, the whole idea of kingdom uh, is kingdom on earth. This whole notion of the God's kingdom come is always that it's here. It's this, uh, and I was going to ask the question, what's convergence all about? I mean, the name. Um, because there is something here in this notion of these two, these two sort of, you know, heavenly or metaphysical and then historical or physical planes coming together through the work of Christ and the ongoing work of the church community. So I wouldn't drive too sharp a wedge between those two. Um, but uh, worldly, of course, you know, you're, you're starting to get more specific, I would assume, to our earthly bodies and these types of things. Uh, if not, then spiritual and worldly probably are set at quite a remove. And in fact, that seems to be what John is doing, that there are those elements of the spirit which are this, you're still in the world, and then there are the elements of the world which are worldly, which can be the oppositional forces. So, and either religious or, as you said nicely, uh, either religious or what we might call secular. Yeah, yeah I mean, lukewarm's a, a mark that you're on the wrong track, for sure. And, uh, of course, Christ in, in, in John 15, he is hated. I mean, that's definitely something that's a component of his, of his ministry. So possibly, and actually that's a, maybe a good point to sort of take as a, um, uh, as a point of departure for understanding our own, you know, whether or not we're hated, whether or not we're opposed, yeah, uh, that we're following Christ.
I got Satan incarnate, by the way, so I'm like on his coattails. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. So I don't know if that. I mean, it's not, it's not to address your question. I think you're. I think yes, this is part of it. Yeah. It almost seems like that. Oh, I see. Oh, you're talking about hatred as a way of engagement. Yeah. Oh, possibly. Um, there's this. It's it's hard to know because there are those certain characters who kind of persist through the gospel accounts, and John's no exception, um, who persist through the gospel accounts who hate, essentially they hate Christ, uh, and they're kind of always on the outs. Well, whether or not they're redeemed is difficult to say. It's not that it wasn't open to the Pharisees. We know this. It's not that it wasn't open to the Sadducees yeah, or these other Jewish sects. Um, but there do seem to be these characters for whom hatred is actually a point of disassociation. There is possibly as well the sense of engagement maybe in this. Yeah, uh, You know, they see something uh, in us that's like, God, a person. Puh. Maybe. Yeah, that's, I hadn't thought of that. Thank you. Yeah, and then that may actually, Sarah, be very. That may tie in very nicely to. Um, sorry, I forget Scott. Scott's question up here uh, in preparing them for, of course, what they face just just soon after his departure. Um, there's always a sense in the gospel accounts. It comes through more strongly in the in the parallel gospels, but it certainly comes through in John's gospel as well, this notion of community. And it comes through probably most strongly in John uh, through the work of the Spirit. And I think that maybe is something that's very important to constantly keep in view here, uh, is this work of the Spirit, that after Christ's, after Christ's departure, uh, the Spirit will come. And for John, this is essential. That tells us something. Um, so I, what I'm saying is you, your question for the disciples is one, I think, that it prepares them potentially for the physical trials that they will soon face, which they, many of them do. Um, but it's also preparatory for what they help to establish. Uh, and it leads us, uh, in some ways, John sort of leads us forward. Of course, chronologically, it comes after. Um, and many, many people think it comes after the, the, the writing of Luke-Acts. Um, but in a lot of ways, because of its position canonically, it helps to prepare us for what takes place then uh, in Acts. Because Acts is all about the formation of this church community by way of the Spirit. And I think very important connections then to, to John's account. So the disciples sort of laying this foundation then for the, the, the church community then to follow this up. Uh, incidentally, I think, and I'm no New Testament fella, uh, Old Testament's my bag, um, but it seems to me that uh, this is uh, loosely modeled, more or less, on Christ's temptation, potentially. Spirit comes tempted. Now, of course, for Christ, it takes some time before he faces that final persecution. But this model of baptism in the Spirit, temptation, is perhaps something that more generally, believers are to be oriented to. Yeah. Now, how this affects then the way in which the world hates, I think, again, this, this relies going forward, much like, you, much like we've done here, and, and this comment up here, of course, alerts us to this. So, yeah. Text. Other questions? Text question. Wrong. 
I don't know who wrote that. I will find you. <laughs> you should write those questions via text message. So I, <laughs> I will come get you. Um, no is the short answer to that. Um, if you would like to talk more about that, that's a rather involved uh, uh, question. Uh, just in a nutshell here, um, Deuteronomy, which ends the, 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 the Pentateuch, uh, is dominated through and through by this notion of God loving his people. Through and through. This is what this is, in a sense, what weds them together. Now, fundamentally, you cannot extract Israel from the call of the patriots. As I say, Israel has a purpose as well. This was the first community. Uh, Israel has a purpose as well. What is that purpose? To recover what was lost in Eden. And what's the target of their recovery? Always, the target of their recovery is, of the recovery is everybody. The Old Testament is our story. It's dominated by Israel precisely because Israel becomes this key function in God's narrative of redemption. And what's the big problem with the Old Testament? It's a trail of tears. It's, it's essentially a failure. It's left unfulfilled. This is the great sort of hope, I think, that the Christian community brings as we see this fulfillment in Christ. The upshot to this is the notion that God loves humankind is, it sort of saturates I think, the Old Testament. I mean, his whole purpose in calling Israel is precisely to get us back to this connection with, with God, humans and God. Again, this image of God language. Yeah. Always with this idea. Yeah. So, you out there. Yeah. We talk more. I'm kidding. I'm, yeah. Tame. Sure, if this person wants to talk to you more, you could talk to them after or something. Absolutely, yeah. I'd be most, most happy to do so. Great. Yeah. Right there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes to all of that. Um, and I think there's something, I mean, I think there's something very important there to, to sort of trot out in terms of what it means to be engaged uh, institutionally with God. There's a danger. We all run, we all face this danger of institutionalizing our relationship with God. Uh, so, for instance, meetings such as these can potentially, there's a danger, of becoming institutionalized. They can become, oh, man, thank you. I got to convergence. Yeah. It's this inoculation of sorts through the week, perhaps. Israel, this incident, now I go Old Testament, click. This was the, one of the great dangers, it's one of the great failures for Israel, is they institutionalized their institutions. So the temple, this becomes a way of saying God is with us. Regardless of what we do, God is with us. How do we know this? Well, that building is still standing. And what does Jeremiah do? Hey, you people. He's going to pave this sucker right over. You think this building is something without God's presence? You are wrong. Law. Law is fundamentally, <laughs> you know, like this. Law is fundamentally the gospel message. Ideally, the Old Testament presentation of law is that it is gospel. It is the good news. God coming down, God instructing a people. Yeah. What happens to the law? It gets captured by those teachers. And they're the ones who facilitate this relationship by virtue of the law. This is Christ's great problem with these characters. 
Yeah? You guys miss the point. You miss the point of the temple. You miss the point of the law. How does the Spirit then aid us in this process? I think Acts 2 and this, the, the coming of the Spirit, and Paul talks about this as well, this notion of the Spirit bearing witness within a community that God is genuinely present. Um, I think ultimately this is what helps, and come Holy Spirit, this is what helps us stabilize our relationship in this regard. This, I think, is what this notion of education is partly about. And I mean education now, not in this detached sort of mental way, but this active engagement. Yeah. And may the Holy Spirit come. Yeah. May He continually, may, may God's presence continually shape and, and, and form us anew. And incidentally, there's, there's tend to always be these holdovers. Some of these characters, perhaps from Northwest, were disaffected by their context. And they came here because they saw certain things that they felt like they could actively engage with God's presence in a more direct way. This, I think, for them, is partly what this idea of education, you're constantly looking for that engagement with Christ. Incidentally, you may not think this, but anybody who's, who identifies himself as a Christian is Pentecostal. Pentecostal, this idea of Pentecostal, has been, it's been so captured and run roughshod over by these mutton heads, yeah, it, who, who take this idea and they create all of these little features and they create this culture that is called Pentecostalism. But everybody's a Pentecostal. What's the great thing about Acts? It's a whole big group of people yeah, who, who are unified by the Spirit. I think that's something that's the great weight of this. So constantly engaging with this idea and making it real in our lives. And you know the thing about this is that, and people oftentimes say, and it's a fair critique, you're so detached, man. Yeah, your head. Yeah. Just so you know, and I'm not, not that it's big or misshapen, but <laughs> you, is that, which actually is slightly probably misshapen, but um, is that we pray these things I don't teach these things and then go home and decide to do something else. I do pray these things. Now, right or wrong, you know, we constantly work these things through. But I hope for these things, definitely. Yeah. So, yeah. It's good. You had a question? Yeah. I just had a question. The short answer is yes, they did um, have a concept of the Spirit. The rather to put some bullet points to that is that the difference now in the New Testament is that the Spirit comes to a context where God's kingdom is established. One of the difficulties in the Old Testament is this kingdom, this, the kingdom of God, text message, Old Testament question, the, the kingdom of God is something that's always in view in the Old Testament. It's never actually realized. There's this, probably this sliver of textual sort of history uh, in Solomon's kingdom where we may have overtures to God's kingdom being established on earth. But it's never quite, because of course Solomon and his many wives, you know, apostasy, he, 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 he goes a horn after other gods. <laughs> Incidentally, I smile. One of the advantages of teaching Old Testament is that in a, in a public context you can say a horn and it's legitimate. There's, there's a reason to say it. And so the point is, is that the kingdom never actually gets established. 
This is the great failure of the period of the monarchy. So God's kingdom, which is ideally going to be established on earth through Israel, never really does. What destabilizes it's in? What is one of the things, of course, Christ's words do in John? They cleanse the disciples. Sarah, come back to your comment, this preparation for the disciples. is It cleanses the disciples precisely to do this very thing. Live in God's kingdom. What does the Spirit do then? It comes down as that active, energizing presence that I think continues or helps to continue the life of that kingdom. We don't do this on our own, thanks be to God. It's always in tandem, always in unity, ideally, with, Christ, with God's presence through the Spirit. This is something that, that energizes the Old Testament as well. So the Jewish believers would have had, yes, absolutely, a sense of God's presence through this spirit in some way or another. Called the daughter voice. In fact, they created language that helped to create a buffer zone. The bat kol. Yeah. The daughter of the voice. The spirit. The shekinah as well. Yeah. The glory of the Lord. All of this. We have time for two more questions. So we'll take one here. Well, just touching on that, how then do they have a name for it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, in the Old Testament it's referred to Variously, as you know, the spirit. So, what was its role? Back then, it was to energize, typically to energize individuals for activity in their work. So, for instance, the judges. Judges are energized in their work through the work, through the presence of the spirit. Saul and David both energized to do their work through the the presence of the spirit. The spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul. I'm going to go out and kill me some Ammonites. Yeah, the spirit of the Lord comes upon David. I'm going to do these types of things. I'm going to fit the role of the monarch. This doesn't continue. This is the problem. Yeah, we don't actually fully establish this. Uh, in Israel, and uh, there's, we have a course on Israeli monarchy. Here, come back to my courses, yes. Um, where we look at the way in which the monarch is positioned in relationship with the community Israel. So if David has the spirit of the Lord upon him, what sort of effect is that to have on the nation of Israel itself? And what we suggest, and I think what actually the text suggests, is that David's role is to model God's sovereignty on earth so that Israel can be brought into line with God's presence and spirit. That is to say they can understand this. Now, one of the other things that opens us up is this idea of temple. Because when, when the text talks about this, it doesn't talk actually about God coming down his own self yeah, and sitting in there. It talks about name. It talks about presence. Yeah. And Solomon's dedication understands this temple as being something where God chooses to meet with his people. So this sense of spirit, this sense of presence, even in the temple. Um, but spirit, the short answer is spirit is the language that is used. Yeah. And typically, again, with individuals, there's a development here. There's a certain progression uh, and we get into the New Testament then, and I think that's one again, coming back to your thoughts on Acts, this is one of the great weights to the, to the Acts 2 event, is that this is poured out on this community. And my word, they're from everywhere. Yeah. Unified through the, through the work of the Spirit. So you're saying it's from an individual, the Spirit it mainly acts in, in individuals in the Old Testament, and then in Acts, we see the Spirit come into a holistic sense to the, to the nations. To a degree. The, the Old Testament is it's multi-layered in this regard. Israel is ideally the target for the Spirit of the Lord. But they have serious problems yeah, after Joshua. In fact, this is systemic in the book of Judges. What is it that gets Israel out of this 
rut. Well, it's these individuals endowed themselves with the Spirit of the Lord that help, ideally, to pull Israel out of this and get them back on the line. Prophets are another example of this. They're constantly coming you know, under the Spirit of the Lord, the Word of the Lord in their mouths, to reorient Israel to this path. So it's actually multifaceted in the Old Testament. Uh, but same thing in the New Testament. We're talking about individuals and we're talking about community. Yeah. Christ is the individual. Yeah. The Spirit descends upon him as a dove. Great. One more question. Northwest. Dis <laughs> disaffected Northwestern. Yeah, I, th I still think the transition is, the, is the, the, the actual establishment of the kingdom of God in the New Testament, where this is an actual, this is a reality now, where in the Old Testament, it's, it's always something that we anticipate, but we never actually quite get there. Yeah, we're always hoping for this. This is the great lament for the prophets, too. That's why they rip their hair out and they swear, yeah, is, my God, people, look what we are and what we are not doing. Yeah. And so I still think that the, the hinge there is that Christ effectively establishes the kingdom. And now the Spirit comes as a means of, in a sense, uh, continually energizing this. And perhaps, coming back to your questions, which are very good ones, this may be what really marks the difference you know, in this presentation of the Spirit uh, in the New Testament. Yeah. So um, ideally, this was to happen in the Old Testament. Hosea, he has this very famous passage um, uh, where he talks about um, uh, love, mercy, and uh, not sacrifice and these types of things. And then the, the, the very next verse, he talks to Israel in terms of, like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. Now, some think that Adam is a place name. I think part of what Hosea is doing, and this is supported elsewhere in Hosea, I think, is that he's actually drawing on this notion that what Israel ideally is doing is reestablishing this connection that was lost with Adam. And this ideally is what they're meant to do. Of course, Hosea, for him, he's ripping his hair out over this. It's like, oh, Jiminy, look where we are, right? And so I, I think that that's, again, this sense of anticipation that never actually quite takes place. Christ is the fulfillment of this. This is Bart to a degree. Yeah. Christ is the fulfillment uh, of this. The kingdom is established. The kingdom is here. So really quickly, draw, draw for us a line. World, kingdom of God, spirit. Seems to be the three, three key themes we talked about. As we summarize this all up, just quickly give us kind of the whole package of you know, this term world, kingdom of God breaking into the world through the spirit. How, how does that all wrap up in John's uh, so world multifaceted could be secular as we understand it, could be those within the confessional community. One of the key points of this, of course, is that Christ comes to save the world. And interestingly, isn't this the presentation in part in the, in the gospel accounts? I came first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, this bifurcation, which they're unified eventually in Christ. What a crazy thing. Uh, kingdom of God, then, is what's established through the work of Christ, which now is available to one and all simply by dint of being image of God. Yeah, everybody in here qualifies. And opposes the world. Yes, that. Which produces hatred. Can be hatred, yes. And what was the last bit? 
and spirit. Oh, and spirit. Spirit then what is uh, actively energizing us in a contemporary setting so that we can continue on this work. We can continue on this witness in being this representative. And, and also the point of contact for people yeah, with God. Very important function. Again, our, our Episcopalians. Yeah. Very important function. Thanks, Brad. Hey, uh, if you guys sent text messages, you didn't get them answered. Um, Brad will be around. Feel free to come talk to him. Um, uh, if you have other questions, again, Brad will be around afterward. Um, let's thank him for being with us. Before you turn that off, will you pray for us? Sure. Did, you go? Yeah, be, did I turn it? No, I did not. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, let's, let's pray. Father, as we gather together, we're mindful of the work of Christ that continues in our lives. Um, we're also mindful, Lord, that we face challenges. Just the attrition of living uh, is difficult enough. And we, we pray in that, Lord, that your spirit would come continuously that it would be outpoured on our poured out on our lives uh, as we gather together that you'd be with us as we are uh, in our uh, as we are alone and walking through our days um, we also pray Lord that as we intersect those who um, have animosity towards you and your kingdom um, that we would be able to model um, your work that we would be able to model your love uh, for them and for one another, that we would do so wisely. Um, and Lord, that as we navigate those situations, that our uh, relationship with you would be, continued, uh, would be continually strengthened. Um, we pray again, Lord, that you would continue to work in us and in our lives, help us to see ourselves for who we are. And we thank you for your many mercies in Christ's name. Amen. Mm-hmm.